Welcome to the second episode of the Stories We Tell podcast. I am your host, Tony Burge. Thank you for joining. Bent double, like old beggars under sacks. Knock-kneed, coughing like hags, we cursed through sludge. Till on the haunting flares we turned our backs, and towards our distant rest began to trudge. Men marched to sleep. Many had lost their boots, but limped on, bloodshod. All went lame, all blind, drunk with fatigue, deaf even to the hoots of gas shells dropping softly behind. Gas, gas, quick boys, an ecstasy of fumbling, fitting the clumsy helmets just in time, but someone still was yelling out and stumbling and floundering like a man in fire or lime. Dim through the misty plains and thick green light, as under a green sea I saw him drowning. In all my dreams before my helpless sight, he plunges at me, guttering, choking, drowning. If in some smothering dreams you too could pace behind the wagon that we flung him in, and watch the white eyes writhing in his face, his hanging face like a devil sick of sin. If you could hear at every jolt the blood come gargling from the froth-corrupted lungs, obscene as cancer, bitter as the cut of vile, incurable sores on innocent tongues, my friend, you would not tell with such high zest to children ardent for some desperate glory. The old lie, dolce et decorum est, pro patria mori. A man cannot realize that above such shattered bodies there are still human faces in which life goes its daily round. And this is only one hospital one single station. There are hundreds of thousands in Germany, hundreds of thousands in France, hundreds of thousands in Russia. How senseless is everything that can ever be written, done, or thought when such things are possible. It must be all lies and of no account when the, when the culture of a thousand years could not prevent this stream of blood being poured out these tortured chambers in their hundreds of thousands, a hospital alone shows what war is. I am young. I am twenty years old. Yet I know nothing of life but despair, death, fear, and fatuous superficiality cast over an abyss of sorrow. I see how peoples are set against one another and in silence, unknowingly, foolishly, obediently, innocently slay one another. I see that the keenest brains of the world invent weapons and words to make it yet more refined and enduring. And all men of my age here and over there, throughout the whole world, see these things. All my generation is expecting, is experiencing these things without me. What would our fathers do 
if we suddenly stood up and came before them and proffered our account? What do they expect of us if a time ever comes when the war is over? Through the years our business has been killing. It was our first calling in life. Our knowledge of life is limited to death. What will happen afterwards? And what shall come out of us? The first part was from the po famous poem Dolce Eight Decorum Est by Wilfred Owen. That last line being the Latin phrase that means that it is good and fitting to die for one's country. And he was a World War I soldier from the UK and became one of the most influential poets to come out of the Great War. And the second quote comes from the book this week, All Quiet on the Western Front, by another World War I veteran, the German Eric Maria Remarque, who saw combat and utilizes this medium, the writing of this book, and others as a way of describing what he saw, his life in the trenches, as well as his observations regarding how the war affected those who fought it. World War One was unique for many reasons. The obvious one is its scale. It is in the name World War, Great War. It is the first one that we had ever had. Now there are some arguments regarding different wars that were on a geographically similar scale like the French and Indian War um, that you know due to all the colonial uh, possessions of the great powers that fought in that war it has often been cited as a possible first world war but if you look at the amount of carnage it really does not come close um, I believe the the first war there are estimations of over 20 million deaths in the French and Indian War I think there was a little over a million so 20 times more the carnage even though it spanned the same geographical reach which gives you an idea of the bloodshed an explanation for this and um, another thing that makes this war unique was that it was during the industrialization of the military you know we see the first planes large-scale long-range artillery capable of immense destruction compared to the cannon we see the first inklings of the tank and also the use of biological warfare as a tactic I think the only other time that biological warfare was used to such a devastating extent was between the Europeans and the Native Americans so it's very interesting when you, you can see these pictures of men on horseback during World War one and a lot and sometimes they're right along you know these giant artillery things that look like they would come from you know, this current day and age or maybe a couple years before or you see a man on horseback next to a tank there is a time of a a very vast transition in tactics or in weapons rather the issue was that the tactics did not keep up with the weapons which is why you would dig a trench and you might move a hundred yards in a year um, but most of the war was just a giant stalemate you would get bombed you'd get machine gunned mustard gas you would run through what was called the 
no man's land, the space in between the trenches to try to take the other trench, which just left you completely out in the open because all of the trees were bombed down. It was a mess. So this was really a war of attrition, and it resulted in some of the most brutal, brutal and horrifying accounts of the war that we have. What I find, I find many things interesting about this book, but one thing I find the most interesting is that it is from a German's perspective. And I think that is why it is so powerful for non-German readers. Like it's very one of the mo- it was one of the most popular books in America when it came out. And one reason I think this is so is because it humanizes the enemy. One of the running themes in this book is how much like the reader, wherever they were from, the young men who were sent to fight this war were how similar we are to the people we are calling our enemy. They were immature. They had romantic notions of sacrifice and defending their homeland. They had dreams. And they were just as convinced of their rightness as any young boy from Great Britain, France, Iowa. And eventually, but later in the war, the boys from Iowa and different parts of the U.S. joined And one thing I think it's lost, especially with our current wars, we obviously have a lot of regular soldiers fighting, just regular infantry. But the past, um, I would say since the 90s, the special forces has been emphasized as a tactic, as a, a, um, a larger part of the military, because it's not so much large-scale invasions anymore as it is more precise attacks. So when you think of the soldiers that are fight these wars, World War I, World War II, they were young men with maybe 10 weeks of training, and they were sent to the most awful death, most of them, that you can imagine. Here's a uh, little excerpt from the beginning talking about uh, their time in school, being convinced by their teacher to join the military. Kantarek had been our schoolmaster, a stern little man in a gray tail coat with a face like a shrew mouse. He was about the same size as Corporal Himmelstoss, the terror of Klosterberg. It is very queer that the unhappiness of the world is so often brought, by, brought on by small men. They are so much more energetic and uncompromising than the big fellows. I have always taken good care to keep out of sections with small company commanders. They are most con- they are mostly confounded little marinettes, martinets. During drill time, Cantoret gave us long lectures until the whole of our class went under his shepherding to the district commandant and volunteered. I can see him now as he used to glare at us through the through his spectacles and say in a moving voice, "Won't you join up, comrades?" These teachers always carry their feelings ready in their waistcoat pockets and trot them out by the hour. But we didn't think of that then. There was indeed one of us who hesitated and did not want to fall into line. That was Joseph Bem, a plump, homely fellow. But he did allow himself to be persuaded, otherwise he would have been ostracized. And perhaps more of us thought as he did, but no one could very well stand out because at the time even one's parents were ready with the word coward. 
No one had the vaguest idea what we were in for. The wisest were just the poor and simple people. They knew the war to be a misfortune, whereas those who were better off and should have been able to see more clearly what the consequences would be were beside themselves with joy. Katkinski said that was the result of their upbringing. It made them stupid. And what Kat said, he had thought about. Strange to say, Bem was one of the first to fall. He got hit in the eye during an attack and we left him lying for dead. We couldn't bring him with us because we had to come back helter-skelter. In the afternoon, suddenly we heard him call and saw him crawling about in no man's land. He had only been knocked unconscious. Because he could not see and was mad with pain, he failed to keep under cover, and so was shot down before anyone could go and fetch him in. Naturally, we couldn't blame Cantorek for this. Where would the world be if one brought every man to book? There were thousands of Cantoreks, all of whom were convinced that they were acting for the best in a way that cost them nothing. And that is why they let us down so badly. For us lads of 18, they ought to have been mediators and guides to the world of maturity, the world of work, of duty, of culture, of progress to the future. We often made fun of them and played jokes on them, but in our hearts we trusted them. The idea of authority which they represented was associated in our minds with a greater insight and a more humane wisdom. But the first death we saw shattered this belief. We had to recognize that our generation was more to be trusted than theirs. They surpassed us only in phrases and in cleverness. The first bombardment showed us our mistake, and under it the world as, we, as they had taught it broke into pieces. While they continued to write and talk, we saw the wounded and dying. While they taught that duty to one's country is the greatest thing, we already knew that death throes are stronger. But for all that, we were no mutineers, no deserters, no cowards. They were very free with all these expressions. We loved our country as much as they. We went courageously into every action, but also we distinguished the false from true. We had suddenly learned to see, and we saw that there was nothing of their world left. We were all at once terribly alone, and alone we must see it through. So we see there how the teachers, there was this um, peer pressure to join up comrades, to fight. And there was a boy that he remembered in class that wasn't so sure about it. And as he writes, ironically, he was one of the first to go down. And he, was, and he even went on to say that secretly they probably all felt as he did but they were too ashamed to admit it. But all of those fancy words, all of the um, romantic expressions, you see this a lot also in the book uh, Johnny Brought His Gun by Dalton Trumbo. All of these words, the words that were used, just sort of flitter away once the, after the first bombardment. Next we have the uh, first battle experienced by Paul Balmer, the uh, the voice of the story, which is a short but intense bombardment. 
The earth, the earth bursts before us. It rain clods. I feel a smack. My sleeve is torn away by a splinter. I shut my fist. No pain. Still that does not reassure me. Wounds don't hurt till afterwards. I feel the arm all over. It is grazed but sound. Now a crack on the skull. I begin to lose consciousness. Like lightning the thought comes to me. Don't faint. I sink down in the black broth and immediately come up to the top again. A splinter slashes into my helmet, but has already traveled so far that it does not go through. I wipe the mud out of my eyes. A hole is torn up in front of me. Shells hardly ever land in the same hole twice. I'll get into it. With one lunge, I shoot as flat as a fish over the ground. There it whistles again, quickly. I crouch together, claw for, cov claw for cover. Feel something on the left, shove in beside it. It gives way. I groan. The earth leaps. The blast thunders in my ears. I creep under the yielding thing, cover myself with it, draw it over me. It is wood. Cloth cover. Cover. Miserable cover against the whizzing splinters. I open my eyes. My fingers grasp a sleeve, an arm. A wounded man? I yell to him. No answer. A dead man. My hand gropes farther. Splinters of wood. Now I remember again that we are lying in a graveyard. But the shelling is stronger than everything. It wipes out the sensibilities. I merely crawl still farther under the coffin. It shall protect me, though death himself lies in it. Before me gapes in the shell hole. I grasp it with my eyes as with fists. With one leap I must be in it. There I get a smack in the face. A hand clamps onto my shoulder. Has the dead man waked up? The hand shakes me. I turn my head. In the second of light I stare into the face of Katskinski. He has a mouth wide open and is yelling. I hear nothing. He rattles me. Comes nearer. In a momentary law his voice reaches me. Gas! 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 Pass it on. I grab for my gas mask. Some distance from me there lies someone. I think of nothing but this. That fellow there must know. Gas. Gas. I call. I lean toward him. I swipe at him with the satchel. He doesn't see. Once again. Again. He merely ducks. It's a recruit. I look at Cat desperately. He has his mask on. I pull out mine too. My helmet falls to one side. It slips over my face. I reach the man. His satchel is on the side nearest me. I seize the mask, pull it over his head. He understands. I let go and with a jump, drop into the shell hole. And then the author continues. After that battle is done, he has um, experienced his first, not only bombardment, but mustard gas attack. He goes on to discuss the mundane, mundanity, the mundaneness of the uh, aftermath of the battle and one thing that's interesting from the battles described in this book is the is the mundane nature he not one battle that he is in he names I don't know if that means that they are not named battles they are just skirmishes but there is not one battle that he refers to as the battle of this or that it is just attack defense 
move on. He writes, Our losses are less than was to be expected. Five killed and eight wounded. It was, in fact, quite a short bombardment. Two of our dead lie in the upturned graves. We merely throw the earth in on them. We go back. We trot off silently in single file, one behind the other. The wounded are taken to the dressing station. The morning is cloudy. The bearers make us make a fuss about numbers and tickets. The wounded whimper. It begins to rain. Monotonously the lorries sway. Monotonously come the calls. Monotonously falls the rain. It falls on our heads and on the heads of the dead up in the line. On the body of the little recruit with the wound that is so much too big for his hip. It falls on Kimmerick's grave. It falls in our hearts. An explosion sounds somewhere. We wince. Our eyes become tense. Our hands are ready to vault over the side of the lorry into the ditch of the, by the road. Nothing happens. Only the monotonous cry. Mind wire. Our knees bend. We are again half asleep. There's another episode in this story. It is, a, again, another battle in which he discusses, but rather than a defensive, he explains the offensive, which he does with typical, in this book, uh, psychological insight. He is able, really, to explain the mentality of a soldier when charging to take the enemy trench which involved more than likely the death of most of the men charging. Uh, again, this is the no man's land, the open field where you are just standing there for the machine gun. A, a very scary place to be. He writes, We have become wild beasts. We do not fight. We defend ourselves against annihilation. It is not against men that we fling our bombs. What do we know of men in this moment when death is hunting us down? Now for the first time in three days we can see his face. Now for the first time in three days we can oppose him. We feel a mad anger. No longer do we lie helpless waiting on the scaffold. We can destroy and kill to save ourselves. To save ourselves had to be and to be revenged. We crouch behind every corner, behind every barrier of barbed wire and hurl a heaps of explosives at the feet of the advancing enemy before we run. The blast of the hand grenades impinges powerfully on our arms and legs. Crouching like cats, we run on, overwhelmed by this wave that bears us along, that fills us with ferocity, turns us into thugs, into murderers, into God only knows what devils. This wave that multiplies our strength with fear and madness and greed of life, seeking and fighting fighting for nothing but our deliverance. If your own father came over with them, you would not hesitate to fling a bomb at him. The brown earth, the torn blasted earth with a greasy shine under the sun's rays, the earth is the background of this restless gloomy world of autom automatons, our grasping is the scratching of a quill. Our lips are dry, 
our heads are debocked with stupor. Thus we stagger forward, and into our pierced and shattered souls bores the torturing image of the brown earth with the greasy sun and the convulsed and dead soldiers who lie there. They can't be helped, who cry and clutch at our legs as we spring away over them. We have lost all feeling for one another. We can hardly control ourselves when our glance lights on the form of some other man. We are insensible, dead men, who through some trick, some dreadful magic, are still able to run and kill. A young Frenchman lags behind. He is overtaken. He puts up his hands. In one, he still holds his revolver. Does he mean to shoot or to give himself? A blow from a spade cleaves through his face. A second sees it and tries to run farther. A bayonet jabs into his back. He leaps in the air, his arms thrown wide, his mouth wide open, yelling. He staggers, and his back the bayonet quivers. A third throws away his rifle, cowers down with his hands before his eyes. He is left behind with a few other prisoners to carry off the wounded. Now imagine, with just the few things we've read so far, imagine going through this and then getting a leave to return home to normal family life. The author is given a short leave to visit home, but the visit in the story, and also probably in real life, when uh, Remark was able to take leave, it showed the contrast of his psychological state from when he left, when he left for training, before he went to the front lines, before he you know, saw what he saw, and to now, afterwards. And that the sad realization that things that he himself will never be the same again. This is good. I like it. But I cannot get on with the people. My mother is the only one who asks no question. Not so my father. He wants me to tell him about the front. He is curious in a way that I find stupid and distressing. I no longer have any real contact with him. There is nothing he likes more than just hearing about it. I realize he does not know that a man cannot talk of such things. I would do it willingly, but it is too dangerous for me to put these things into words. I am afraid they might then become gigantic and I'd be no longer able to master them. What would become of us if everything that happens out there were quite clear to us? So I confine myself to telling him a few amusing things but he wants to know whether I have ever had a hand-to-hand -hand fight. I say no, and get up and go out. But that does not mend matters. After I have been startled a couple of times in the street by the screaming of the tram cars, which resembles the shriek of a shell coming straight for one, somebody taps me on the shoulder. It is my German master, and he fastens on me with the usual question. Well, how are things out there? Terrible. 
Terrible, eh? Yes, it is dreadful. But we must carry on. And after all, you do at least get decent food out there, so I hear. You look well, Paul, and fit. Naturally, it's worse here. Naturally, the best for our soldiers every time. That goes without saying. I imagine leave would be different from this. Indeed, it was different a year ago. It is I, of course, that have changed in the interval. There lies a gulf between the ta that time and today. At that time, I still knew nothing about the war. We had only been in quiet sectors. But now I see that I have been crushed without knowing it. I find I do not belong here anymore. It is a foreign world. Some of these people ask questions, some ask no questions, but one can see that the latter are proud of themselves for their silence. They often say with a wise air that these things cannot be talked about. They plume themselves on it. I prefer to be alone so that no one troubles me, for they all come back to the same thing, how badly it goes and how well it goes. One thinks it is this way, another that and yet they are always absorbed in the things that go to make up their existence. Formerly I lived in just the same way myself, but now I feel no contact here. They talk too much for me. They have worries, aims, desires that I cannot comprehend. I often sit with one of them in the little beer garden and try to explain to them that this is really the only thing, just to sit quietly like this. They understand, of course. They agree. They may even feel it so, too. But only with words. Only with words, yes, that is it. They feel it. But always with one half of themselves. The rest of their being is taken up with other things. They are so divided in themselves that none feels it with the whole essence. I cannot even say myself exactly what I mean. When I see them here, in their rooms, in their offices, about their occupations, I feel an irresistible attraction in it. I would like to be here too and forget about the war, but also it repels me. It is so narrow. How can that fill a man's life? He ought to smash it to bits. How can they do it, while out at the front the splinters are whining over the shell holes and star shells go up? The wounded are carried back on waterproof sheets and comrades crouch in the trenches. They are different men here, men I cannot properly understand, whom I envy and despise. I must think of Cat and Albert and Mueller and Jaden. What will they be doing? No doubt they are sitting in the canteen or perhaps swimming. Soon they will have to go up to the front line again. Paul, after this short leave, has to return again to the front lines. And this is when he is confront confronted with his first kill since he has been in combat. This is um, quite a long, drawn-out death, and the author uses it. Again, this is, this is a fictional work. 
the names of these people were not real. And it's, and it's hard to tell how much of this is autobiographical. The author himself was a frontline German soldier. So it is, um, it's not impossible to believe that a lot of this is autobiographical. But there, there's no, there's no writing as to whether or not this actually this event actually happened. So in the fictional sense, this part, um, this drawn out death, this first kill of Paul, is the final nail in the coffin, if you will, in terms of his prior life. He will never be the same again. He is face to face with what war is, the fact that his enemy is just like him, and. Um, it is, uh, like I said, a long, drawn-out death, lasts for the night, and the soldier, Paul, has to not only confront with the reality of what he did, but the repercussions of what he did. This is the first time I have killed with my hands, whom I can see close at hand, whose death is my doing. Cat and Crope and Mueller have experienced it already when they have hit someone. It happens to many in hand-to-hand fighting especially. But every gasp lays my heart bare. This dying man has time with him. He has an invisible dagger with which he stabs me. Time in my thoughts. I would give much if he would but stay alive. It is hard to lie here and to have to see and hear him. In the afternoon, about three, he is dead. So a little break from the reading. Um, The author is doing a night walk, climbs into a little crater. This soldier is also on a walk, reconnaissance type deal, looking over the land. So he walks right up to him. They startle each other. The author stabs him, runs to another crater, and then for the next, it seems to be about five to six hours, the man slowly is dying. But he is dead. About three, he is dead. I breathe freely again, but only for a short time. Soon the silence is more unbearable than the groans. I wish the gurgling were there again, gasping hoarse, now whistling softly and again hoarse and loud. It is mad what I do, but I must do something. I prop the dead man up against, again, so that he lies comfortably, although he feels nothing anymore. I close his eyes. They are brown. His hair is black and a bit curly at the sides. The mouth is full and soft beneath his, beneath his mustache. The nose is slightly arched. The skin brownish. It is now that he... It is now not so pale as it was before, when he was still alive. For a moment the face seems almost healthy. Then it collapses suddenly into the strange face of the dead that I have so often seen. Strange faces, all alike. No doubt his wife still thinks of him. She does not know what happened. He looks as if he would have often written to her. She will still be getting mail from him, tomorrow in a week's time, perhaps even a stray letter a month hence. She will read it, and in it he will be speaking to her. My state is getting worse. I can no longer control my thoughts. What would his wife look like? Like the little brunette on the other side of the canal? 
Does she belong to me now? Perhaps by this act she becomes mine. I wish Cantorek were sitting here beside me. If my mother could see me. The dead man might have had thirty more years of life if only I had impressed the way back to our trench more sharply on my memory. If only he had run two yards further to the left, he might now be sitting in the trench over there and writing a fresh letter to his wife. But I will get no further that way, for that is the fate of all of us. If Kimrick's leg had been six inches to the right, if Hay Westus had bent his back three inches further forward. The silence spreads. I talk and must talk. So I speak to him and say to him, Comrade, I did not want to kill you. If you jumped in here again, I would not do it, if you would be sensible too. But you were only an idea to me before, an abstraction that lived in my mind and called forth its appropriate response. It was that abstraction I stabbed. But now for the first time I see you are a man like me. I thought of your hand grenades, your bayonet, your rifle. Now I see your wife and your face and our fellowship. Forgive me, comrade. We always see it too late. Why do they never tell us that you are poor devils like us, that your mothers are just as anxious as ours, and that we have the same fear of death and the same dying and the same agony? Forgive me, comrade. How could you be my enemy? If we threw away these rifles and this uniform, you could be my brother, just like Cat and Albert. Take twenty years of my life, comrade, and stand up. Take more, for I do not know what I can even attempt to do with it now. It is quiet. The front is still except for the crackle of rifle fire. The bullets rain over. They are not fired haphazard, but shrewdly aimed from all sides. I cannot get out. I will write to your wife, I say hastily to the dead man. I will write to her. She must hear it from me. I will tell her everything I have told you. She shall not suffer. I will help her, and your parents too, and your child. My brain is taxed beyond endurance, but I realize this much, that I will never dare to write these people as I intended. Impossible. I look at the portraits once more. They are clearly not rich people. I might send them money anonymously if I earn anything later on. I seize upon that. It is at least something to hold on to. This dead man is bound up with my life, therefore I must do everything, promise everything, in order to save myself. I swear blindly that I mean to live only for his sake and his family, with wet lips I try to placate him. And deep down in me lies the hope that I may buy myself off in this way and perhaps even get out of this. It is a little stratagem. If only I am allowed to escape, then I will see to it. So I open the book and read slowly. Gerard Duval, Compositor. With the dead man's pencil I write the address on an envelope, then swiftly thrust everything back into his tunic. I have killed the printer, Gerard Duval. I must be a printer, I think confusedly. I must be a printer. As the book comes to a close, 
Paul has all but has lost all of his close friends in the various unnamed battles in which they fought. And again, these were literally battles for yards of land. By this time, he is in this ultimate state of apathy, apathetic towards life, towards continuing living. He has been numbed by loss, by the brutal bombing, by the gas. He writes in this uh, final, final, uh, final few lines of Paul's voice. It is autumn. There are not many of the old hands left. I am the last of seven fellows from our class. Everyone talks of peace and armistice. All wait. If it again proves an illusion, then they will break up. Hope is high. It cannot be taken away again without an upheaval. If there is not peace, then there will be a revolution. I have fourteen days rest. Because I have swallowed a bit of gas in the little garden, I sit whole day long in the sun. The armistice is coming soon. I believe it now, too. Then we will go home. Here my thoughts stop and will not go any farther. All that meets me, all that floods over me are but feelings. Greed of life, love of home, yearning for the blood, intoxication of deliverance, but no aims. Had we returned home in 1916, out of the suffering and the strength of our experience, we might have unleashed a storm. Now if we go back, we will be weary, broken, burnt out, rootless, and without hope. We will not be able to find our way anymore. And men will not understand us. For the generation that grew up before us, though it has passed three years with us already, had a home and a calling. Now it will return to its old occupations, and the war will be forgotten. And the generation that has grown up after us will be strange to us and push us aside. We will be superfluous even to ourselves. We will grow older, a few will adapt themselves, some others will merely submit, and most will be bewildered. The years will pass by, and in the end we shall fall into ruin. But perhaps all of this that I think is mere melancholy and dismay, which will fly away as the dust when I stand once again beneath the poplars and listen to the rustling of their leaves. It cannot be that it has gone. The yearning that made our blood unquiet, the unknown, the perplexing, the oncoming things, the thousand faces of the future, the melodies from dreams and from books, the whispers and divinations of women. It cannot be that this has vanished in bombardment, in despair and brothels. Here the trees show gay and golden. The berries of the rowan stand red among the leaves. Country roads run white out to the skyline, and the canteens hum like beehives with rumors of peace. I stand up. I am very quiet. Let the months and years come. They can take nothing from me. They can take nothing more. I am so alone and so without hope 
that I can confront them without fear. The life that has borne me through these years is still in my hands and my eyes. Whether I have subdued it, I know not. But so long as it is there, it will seek its own way out, heedless of the will that is within me. This goes on until he too, Paul Bomer, meets his end. And it says that he dies in October 1918 while on a patrol during a day, his last patrol, during a day that was actually so peaceful that the only report given by the army was that all quiet on the Western Front. What Remark does with this work is that he is able to freely express himself through the character of Paul such liberties that he might not have felt possible to share himself. What he sets out to do with this work and what he accomplishes is to give the reader a glimpse of the young men who were sent to the slaughter for four years for reasons that they were not completely sure of. They all had their initial reasons for joining by year three and four those reasons didn't seem good enough. What makes this book so impactful is that it could easily be about an American, British, French, Russian, Italian soldier, Austria, Hungarian soldier, because the experiences were not that different. This has often been cited, and Remark may have even intended it to be an anti-war book. He was actually, he escaped Germany during the Nazi rise, because Adolf Hitler had his books burned because they were seen as cowardly, as against the father, the motherland, fatherland, uh, because of his honest portrayal of the nor- the regular soldier, infantry soldier in World War One, the questioning of authority, things that were pretty toxic to Nazi control and power. I don't see this as a necessarily an anti-war book because it doesn't the argument isn't that war should never happen i think why what this book does is it shows with honesty the horror of war so that we are not so quick to utilize it as a means to an end again because it isn't just these 30 year experienced special ops soldiers fighting this war It's 17, 18, 19-year-old boys with 10 weeks of training and then sent to fight each other. What I took from reading this again was the betrayal of the innocence and trust of the young men by the older men who sent them to battle. That was definitely a running theme in this story. This, this isn't to say, again, that there is never a cause for war to fight, but that this war, this great war, should not have ever happened. It's especially true when we are talking about the aggressors, in this case Germany, whose frontline troops we're getting the perspective of in this work, and of course their allies, Austria, Hungary, and Italy. World War I really was, it was sparked by the assassination of Franz Ferdinand, but it was really... It became so widespread because of the 
entangled alliances and the arms race that had occurred uh, the past 30, 40 years leading up to that point. Germany wanting to prove themselves as a new empire, a new colonial power. The Allies fought to defend and then reclaim lost territory as well as squash the German aggression. And the German side was more as a competition. It was part of an expansionist mindset. Greed. People like Kaiser Wilhelm did not fight or die in this war. Woodrow Wilson did not face machine gun fire or mustard gas to reclaim a plot of land. It was people like Eric Maria Remarque, Paul Bomer, Wilfred Owen. As any war, it robbed an entire generation of their youth. And as the perpetuators of this conflict, we can see the young men of Germany who were sent as these chess pieces as the vehicle through which Wilhelm could realize his empire. But the reality which is shown was that the mund of the mundane and forgotten deaths of children forfeiting their future for a cause that wasn't worthy of their life. What this book shows is that we have to be taught to hate each other. We have to be convinced that the enemy is different than us, that they do not love, that they do not have dreams or hopes. As Paul said to the man that was dying, that he saw, he killed an ideal and then realized it was a man. And the reason why I chose this book specifically, because it is a German, the enemy of that great war. And I challenge anyone to read this and not walk away with a different perspective on the idea of enemy or of other. Thank you again um, for, for joining me on this journey today. I apologize it was a bit dark. This is a dark book, but is it, it is an important book. Um, and I also thought it was appropriate for Memorial Day weekend to discuss you know, one of the major conflicts of the modern age and again I, I don't see it as this anti-war propaganda I see it as a realistic depiction of what war is because for us to answer the question is it worth it we need to know what it is and I've read very few books as powerful as remarks in that regard as always, please uh, let me know your thoughts. What did you like, dislike? What would you like to hear more or less of? And if you enjoyed it, please subscribe to the podcast. Please share it with friends, family, relatives who you think would enjoy it as well. Uh, I tried to correct some audio issues this time. Hopefully it sounds a little better. Change the format a bit. Um, but let me know what you thought, good or bad. Uh, Every time I do this, I hope to get a little bit better, working a little bit harder at it. Um, we had a lot more listeners last week than I honestly expected. I was grateful, happy that uh, so many people listened to it, and I hope you continue to get something out of this passion project of mine. Thank you again for listening. Have a safe Memorial Day weekend. I'll see you next time.